everyone, it's Heather Gold and Kevin Marks. And Deb Schultz is Pesachim this week. It's a long holiday for you, not Jews. And this is, believe it or not, episode 100 of Tumblevision. We've been doing this thing a long time. We're going to do two episode 100s because it's so good. We'll just have more of it. And Deb <laughs> will be back for a big review of the year of the years. We're hoping to do uh, to get interviewed and get into our history, but tonight is an awesome, awesome show. I'm thrilled to bring you as our guest one of my favorite writers on the web, uh, Paul Ford. Paul, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here. And this is a kind of interesting, significant week in the world of, I guess, community. Can we still use the word community? Does it mean anything at this point? No, but we can still use the word. Uh, so we've had this huge, huge acquisition happen this week. Facebook pays a billion dollars. I didn't read the deal. Did they actually pay cash, Paul? Mixture of cash and, and stock. How much cash? Three dollars cash? Didn't say. Yeah, I wonder how much of that's cash. Interesting. So, Instagram's been acquired. Uh, those of us who love amazing, beautifully handcrafted products made by four, you know. Small uh, goatee coders and tiny little peaked hats in a basement somewhere. Actually, in Twitter's old offices. In yeah, so it couldn't. In, in one more. In, um, what do you call it? Couldn't be any more tweed than that. The, what's, what's the hipster place in San Francisco? South Park. South Park. So you think it's like in the center of the indie hipster web code, and then it becomes Facebook. So I, like many people, were unhappy to hear that Facebook is acquiring Instagram, and it's a really gives us a really uh, great chance to talk about first of all whether or not you can tumble on something like Instagram, which is for me the closest application experience to the old web that I've I've had so far. And can Facebook acquire? Like, what is the value they're getting? Can they actually get the social interaction piece that's so good on Instagram? Can they bring that into what they're doing at all? Can they keep that? Um, there's lots and lots of questions, Paul as always, wrote, uh, writes incredibly insightful pieces about the web in general and codes. It's, I don't know how many coder-writer people there are. There's a few. There's, there's some. I'm, I'm one of them. It's like a little fraternity. Do you feel like you're in a secret fraternity with Dave Weiner and John Gruber and I don't know, whoever else has decided they're going to write it all the time? That's not a. I don't think that fraternity is very secret. Um, yeah, no. I mean, you never like, talk about yourself. You talk the least about yourself of all. You. Well, that's not entirely. I used to talk about myself all the time. I'm just. I've gotten really boring. Um, no. Yeah. You know. It's. It's. I like doing two things, and it's nice that you think I do them both well. So. I, I, I yeah. Those your code because I don't know anything about it. What, what's last thing? Well, you built Harper's. I built Harper's, uh, you know, I did a big JavaScript pro project recently, a big social network. Um, I did the content management system for uh, Gourmet Live, which was the relaunch of Condé Nast's Gourmet Magazine on the iPad. So, Did you work, that, with, uh, do you work with Anil on that stuff? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, if, if I have a job, I would say the, the job, I, uh, I, I work a few days a week at Activate. Which is the company that he co-founded with Michael Wolf? Right. Now this is not Michael Wolf, the the surly, no, this is fair writer. Definitely not that Michael Wolf. Who once had a startup? Okay. Yeah, that's a weird book. I think it's 
I would like to go back and reread that. If those, for those of you, and, and you might if you're listening to the show, in fact, be one of these people, uh, during you know Web 1.0, point early before pre-2.0, Michael Wolff wrote for The Standard, and before that he did a startup. Wrote a book about it called Burn Rate. Uh, before Burn we get too much farther, gotcha. I should let everybody know, Tumble Vision is a weekly salon-style podcast about the art and science of um, social engagement. And what is this crazy, uh, weird-ass word? Tumbling. Tumbling is this old Yiddish word. It was a job where uh, Jews hired somebody to perform, not just perform at a wedding and entertain, but to get everyone to dance. So in this sort of new networked era, the skill set of how you get people to engage in something, you create conditions that make everyone's involvement more likely, we didn't have a good word for it. And managing community isn't really that. Uh, managing community isn't really the best word for it. So we're using tumbling for that, tumble vision. So we talk about living in a net on the show and living in a more networked culture and how things, um, how things work well. I mean, how you help things happen. Conversations continue. And, uh, and so we talk a lot about social media and community-related sites, but we also talk about different kinds of art and government and all kinds of stuff because silos are breaking down and it gets to be a different kind of... The world looks more and more like it's trying to learn from software. At least that's how it looks to me. Is that true for you, Paul? I think absolutely. I mean, I think the the thing I keep noticing, I, I notice it myself, is that you learn how to do new things from software. Like I was, I was like, oh, you know, I want to make a map for reasons that are too boring to go into, but I wanted to figure out how to make a map. And I went and downloaded um, Ortelius, which is a Mac map making software. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is probably kind of how you do this. And, oh, I see, you put the, the little roads here and that's how that connects. And, and then all of a sudden you realize that like, I didn't read a book about cartography and uh, it's not like I really truly know anything, but at the same time, uh, it's weird that in order to discover how to do a thing, you just go out and see what the appropriate software is. And you use the affordances that that provides to, to show you how to make it and give you clues about how to do it, if, if it's right. good so software. It shows you where the, where the limits are. And then there's, you know, there might be a community around it. Um, and so, you know, it's, Photoshop you know, is, is as much at this point a language that designers use to communicate with other people. Like when you look at the layers and the structures. And actually, just to, to beat on that a little bit, there is, I'll, I'll find the link in a minute, but if you go and you find the like official Adobe documentation for the the structure of a Photoshop file, it's like the most amazing like 20 years of what <laughs> everyone thinks an image is and then yes. layers show up. It's so complicated. It's like NASA complicated. Um, yes, and you so can actually just sort of learn. Uh, it's just great. You can learn about it like just the historical understanding of an image just from reading that spec. Not that I would recommend that. <laughs> and I see things that aren't software themselves are learning, like other structures. I mean, the same way, you know, we have agile business development and attempt to say how to, I mean, I'm always looking as an artist at how software developers in the web work because that stuff has been helpful, at least to me. And so what do you think about Instagram? Um, where where do you see its antecedents? If you were going to open it up like a spec? Huh. Well, I mean, just about any social network, right? I mean, it's just the following and the, and the so on. It's what's interesting. And then... Maybe give a basic description of Instagram or before we go into it in case someone happens to listen to this and isn't a big user of Instagram. Sure. So Instagram, as 
I've experienced mostly passively watching my wife use it is a social network around photos. It's very, very tied to mobile. It doesn't have a strong web presence or it, it basically does, but it does not, it is not a web first experience. And it's about taking or importing pictures, uh, you know, directly from your phone and uploading into the service where people can then comment on them and respond to them. And, and you can sort of see your friend's photos. So it's not entirely unlike the photo, the, um, Facebook photos features, except it was, uh, it felt a little more lo-fi, a little more sort of like just, it was purely about these images and uh, it was sort of felt a little quirkier. It also had filters that you could apply to the images, which was a lot like um, Hipstamatic, which was an early iPhone app that would let you sort of do retro photography straight from the phone. It also made photos all square. Instead yeah. of some other shape, which for me is the thing I paid the most attention to at the beginning. It sounds like a little thing, but what I felt like when I came to it was it's going to help me make my photos look pretty much pretty good. Right. Compared and, to what they were looking like before, they just looked instantly better. It's true. And people really like that. Like my wife really liked that. That's a positive. It was fun. It just sort of added something to the whole experience. And I think it also got everybody on the same page. It, it's just sort of like, that was the the filter that per, a person would choose is actually a little bit of communication on top of the image. And then you'd get there's a whole kind of tradition of uh, saying you know hashtagging no filter, like if this thing is so amazing, it's just naturally this amazing. Mm -hmm. You know this is just nature. This is what, how I'm going to let you know this is nature or whatever it is you're taking the photo of. Did you, I don't know if you sh you saw you saw Cliff Quang's piece um, in Fast Company Design. Um, um, Paul, that 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 I'll put it. I'll stick the link in the chat as we do. Um, but I thought that was that was quite perceptive because he, he, he oh no he basically says that it's um, by making things sort of beautiful and um, consistent, um, it gives you the, the sort of it's giving you a grammar of, of how you how you supposed to behave on it. You see a bunch of these other things and you say, oh, can I make beautiful photographs like that? Oh yes, I can. And you can turn your crappy camera phone pictures into William Eggleston um, snapshots. And I think part of the, part of the success is that it's um, it's photo sharing for introverts. Um, and this may be just the stream that I've got, and you, you may have a different experience. But what I see is lots of people who've noticed something odd and taken a photograph of it and then decided to share it. Um, sure. Not I many, think that also says something about who you follow. That may be true. Um, but not many photographs of people. Well, right? it depends again on who you follow. Some people take okay. photos of themselves all the time, right? So people who've been on the be web true. a long time. Uh, Melissa Jura Grant, uh, who I highly recommend following, we should get on the show, melissa.tumblr.com, and runs um, a really interesting media label that does self-publishing. She was a webcam girl early, and she's, there's a, in fact, there's a, there's a hashtag, G-P-O-Y, that was on Tumblr before I saw it on Instagram, gratuitous picture of yourself. You know, uh, Jono.com, these are two friends of mine who post photos of themselves often. Now, they post lots of photos of other people. They're both incredibly aesthetic. They're incredible curators. They take gorgeous photos, and they actually don't need magic filters to take gorgeous photos. They help, it helps me to have the magic filters. But there's lots of pictures of them, and they kind of, I found that people respond most strongly 
when I take a picture of myself. In fact, as soon as I found out the Instagram news, my response was to take a picture. I was in a very beautiful spot in a hill in San Francisco with the city behind me. I just took a photo of my facial, incredibly grumpy, pouty, <laughs> three-year-old reaction to, I like being here, and now you've ruined the last place I like to be on the internet because I like Twitter, and now I like Twitter a lot less. And before that, I liked web pages, and now the web pages are like some, you know. That's what it looked like in the photo. So that's our general we, sense of... Can we see that photo? Can that yeah. get put in the chat? Yeah, let's, Absolutely. Let's see I mean, Link Whisperer, maybe Mariko can help out with that. So, well, well, that's, But that's actually quite interesting because it's, it's kind of hard to do that. But that's also this... It's Instagram. It, it tries really hard to make you not see the photo. Somebody wrote a little tool called Grabgram. Or, There's Instagram that I use. You can, you can get to it quite easily. Was it Gramgram? Uh, and you can grab any photo there from anybody. My my handle, like it's on Twitter, is H E A T H R. So so Paul, my sense is that the language, the structure of Instagram as a community, if you want to call it that, sort of helps teach you to communicate visually a certain way. You know, so that I w- it, it made me more likely to. Here's a photo of me acting out my feeling instead of tweeting out my feeling or taking a photo of which many people did of a you know of a screen grab. And post that seems that. that seems very sensible. I mean, when I've talked to people who use it a lot. That that you know, and again, right, right back to my wife and sort of watching, because she was in there with a lot of our friends, some of whom were visual artists and so on, and they each had their own relationship with it. But it definitely had a kind of teaching function that way. It was like, well, this is what's appropriate in this community, and this is it. That takes so much anxiety away too. It's just sort of like, oh, well, here's what you do when you're here. It's one of the things that increases, you know, that a tum- So in this sense, we spent so much time in this site, and I give a lot of talks talking about people tumbling and how to give a presentation more like a conversation to pull people in. But part of the success of Instagram is that these elements perform that function. They help lower the bar to participation. It makes it much easier to get involved. And because you're dealing with a medium that shows emotion so much more easily, mm. they're encouraging emotional communication it increases the level of connectedness you're going to have to each other. And then the more public emotion you see, it's just more space for public feeling, more, much more quickly. There's the photo. Um, it's pretty yeah, – <laughs> I don't know if you uh, can get it's, it in there. Yeah, it's in the chat room, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've looked that way. I don't even – I think I was like a little obedient little kid. I don't even think I did look that way when I was three or four, which is when I suppose you're supposed to look like that. So – have you is this something you've observed Paul in other successful social environments online or in other environments that there's a way like the ways in which it makes you more likely to get involved well look I mean there's a great quote from the socialist artist William Morris late 1800s in Britain and he just he was complaining about typewriters and he just went you can't have art without resistance in the materials you have to actually have sort of boundaries and pressure and you can't just sort of have something that lets you do anything and so Instagram actually created resistance like there's a you couldn't do everything and then there's sort of social norms started to arise out of that like what the rules are and so I think that any successful network and that's why Facebook's weird because like it, it just kind of keeps sprawling. Like they keep taking away resistance. And uh, Twitter, I mean, has perfect resistance in 140 characters. You can right. only screw it up so much. Um, 
And I think that's why Instagram is so successful as a product is it just embraced that. Like it was just so, it was so neat and everything was square and you could have these certain filters that would communicate a certain thing, but you didn't have like a million filters and uh, you couldn't do your own filters. Like that, that's a, that's the sort of stuff that is the, that nerds love to build, including people like myself. And, and, and that's the death of these products, right? If you could be, have like your own Instagram filter de- designer built in, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's that just coming back to it, it's like it's those rules. It's that the set of norms, it's the, the resistance that, that makes that stuff work and keeps it sort of small and exciting. Well, yeah, it makes it easy to come in. So it feels intimate. Do you mean small? Because how many users do that, does Instagram have? It felt small to individuals, though. That's why they freaked yes. out so bad. I had 30 million. Right. So it's. I think the word is intimate. And, and frankly, intimate mm-hmm. is not mm-hmm. – it's not small. It's intimate, which is frankly the best thing you could do, but it's rare because intimacy is not achieved by exposure, which is what Facebook is focused on. And Facebook is focused on exposure because – for as far as I can see, it doesn't know anything or could, could care less about the quality of interaction between people. It doesn't really seem to build for that. It seems to build to support its its uh, its um, business model. And you, I thought, and showed that beautifully in your piece. Was it New York Magazine? Where you yeah. talked about how sprawling Facebook is, and you said, "Yeah, but if you want some amazing UX, it's really tight. Go use the Ad Manager on Facebook." Yeah, let's let's put that link in because that thing is just fantastic. But that, that says so much about their focus. I mean, I, it's been kind of obvious to me, but of course, it's all we you know, look at. It's just about that. It's an environment created for them to ram not just ads, but to get as much clickstream data out of you. So the only thing that I can imagine I know for sure about this Instagram purchase, if they don't kill it off the way Yahoo eventually slowly is killing Flickr, is that they'll get the data out of your usage of the thing and sell it to people. I mean, what, what choice do they have, right? I mean, that's, that's what they do. Well, there's also another thing going on, which is that Facebook has sort of hit the saturation point of new users. This has been, you know, obviously coming for a while as they hit the number of people online. Um, and if they can get mobile users that, that who aren't web users, that will help. Um, and that's, you know, that's where the next billion are going to come from. So that's part of it. But the other thing is the thing that Zuckerberg said last year, which is the number of interactions per user needs to go up. Um, and that, you know, his, his, in order for his exponential growth to continue, that's what he needs. And therefore, sure. that's driving a lot of the strategy. That's driving the, um, what they, whatever they call the, the thing where it automatically uploads your um, Spotify and everything else you're doing to Facebook for your friends until you slap it around the face and stop it. Um, and that, that's very much, you know, Instagram has tapped into driving that kind of engagement with photographs um, in, a, in a very different way than the classic Facebook pattern is. Classic Facebook pattern is you go, to, go and do a thing and take a bunch of photographs, then upload them all to Facebook and tag them with your friends. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of wave to it where suddenly 50 photographs show up at once and there's a, there's a tagging burst and it goes away. Um, whereas Instagram is much more of, no, I'm carrying this device and I've just seen something interesting that I want to share. And it is the the photographic equivalent, the visual equivalent of Twitter, where it's like, I have a, a, a short, trivial observation that people might want to see. Um, let me throw that out to the world and see, and, and see if anybody likes it. Um, and, and then you get little phatic hearts appearing next to your thing and little things popping up saying, Heather liked it. Mm-hmm. Barico liked it. And you're, oh, they liked it. They like me. Um, <laughs> 
Was it that Twitter style impermanence that attracted people? I mean, that sense of like that this wouldn't every everything you put on Facebook just hovers forever. I think there's an implied impermanence to it. That's part part of the. It doesn't feel impermanent to me because you can always look at the store of all your photos. I use it to collect my photos. But but there's huh. also in your in, it's only in your hand. It, it doesn't feel like it's out there in the world. So the, you know, people made a lot about Instagram's homepage just being like, download the app and bugger off. Um, but that wasn't quite true. They also have, they do have a page for every photograph, but it's just a page for that photograph. It doesn't take you anywhere else except to the app. You cannot say, oh, there's Heather. What else is she taking photographs of? Oh, there's a bunch of her friends. None of the other things on the page are linked, um, except they download this app. I would say this. My experience at the web has been, Paul, that first people made homepages, then they kind of blogged. Then yeah. you were able to make a, a you know blog more easily. Then Tumblr, Tumblr Imposters came along, so you could blog more easily. Then Twitter made it faster and easier to talk to people to follow each other's lives, where it kind of combined the elements of instant messenger, like, what, mm-hmm. like knowing you're there yeah. or not. This is even easier than Twitter. Forget 140 characters; it's one click. So sure. it was the fastest, simplest way to follow someone's life. I mean, people who loved Flickr and Flickr is still one of the best community designs seen so far on the web um, mm-hmm. you know was still played this kind of role right it was a place where you could follow your friends lives as well as beautiful photography and there are people you can follow on Instagram I think who are followed by huge numbers of people because they're great photographers and then there's other sure. people followed by many because they want to network with them somehow but the quality of the conversation is pretty high in the sense of it has a lower amount of bullshit in it than the level of where conversation has gotten to on Twitter, right? Over the t- over time, there's a lot more glad handing on Twitter. There's a lot sure. more uh, unnecessary writing. It's not how you feel. It's just a way of well, constantly acknowledging each other. Well, also, I mean, it has this sort of purity of the early Twitter before the at replies um, were became such a strong feature, which is that you only see the people you're following, which means it's much harder to inject commercial noise into it. Um, you know, Twitter is now at the stage where it's it's being aggressively spammed all the time, um, and you know, still by default on Twitter, you don't see your replies unless you click something. But if you do, they're likely to be full of noise. And the same with the hashtags. The hashtags will start out um, amusing and fun, and then as soon as they get any traction, they are instantly filled up by robots trying to sell you shit. And the um, Instagram has managed to preserve that. Um, small group chosen intimacy that, that, that blogging certainly had and, and, and Twitter had and is, is, is gradually losing as more and more people use it as a broadcast medium. Um, and there are people who use Instagram as a broadcast medium, but they're mostly, you know, pretty girls posting photographs of themselves and things and trying to, trying to get more likes from that. You know, there is a popular page. That, that's where the, you know, that, that is the leakage on Instagram into, into that world, but it's not as... Um, corrupted yet shall we say not as well it's actually in that kind of wonderful moment when huge subcultures or huge cultures discover it and and it grows virally so it's sort of like you know the my wife is pointing out thai beauty queens have a very large presence uh there's a lot of fingernail pictures and stuff like that and um that's a kind of magical moment before everything goes mass when just stuff you never expected Discover, you know, I mean, and then you know, Urkut goes Brazilian, like that. That's how that happened, right? Um, but it's you know, that's 
it's such a neat moment and you know i'm sure that will go like that it'll it will become an enormous mass medium with some very very strong broadcast capabilities you know almost unavoidably it seems like these things all grow that way well say say that again cuz i'm not sure that's true i think we're peop- this is an intentional effort to try to grow intimacy but isn't path more like that? I mean, is that? Do you think that that's actually going to persist? I think path is along those. Is trying to do that. I think Instagram's already done it. Okay. I don't know from my experience of it. If it's already thirty million users and I still have an intimate experience there, unless I'm a very unusual user of it. Yeah. They've been able to keep an environment that allows you to have that while having it serve more and more people. No, I think that proves your point. That's totally sensible. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. That. I mean. And that's. It was the same. Is the same thing that, that Twitter has in that Twitter managed to get to that point um, without putting constraints on the number of people you can follow and, and that kind of thing. Just by the natural architecture of intimacy that's built into it, by the presumption that you that you you choose who you see. Um, and the thing that undermines it most on Twitter is is the fact that if you sign up now, it will it will tell you to follow Lady Gaga five times before you actually get to type anything. Um, and so there is, you know, in some ways, these, these companies sabotage themselves. And I don't think, you know, Instagram sign up doesn't do that. It doesn't say, oh, you should really follow these people here. Um, it just sort of gives you, it, it presumes that, you, that you've got someone you, you're um, joining it for, I think. Do you think, uh, and, I, and I don't know if it's this tumbling concept is clear with you, Paul, but do you think it's possible to do that in the Instagram form? I don't know. I really don't. Like I don't. I I don't want to try to answer that question. <laughs> what right. do you think? I don't know myself. I mean, I can't say I've tried as much. For example, to introduce people to one another isn't as simple. Although you can sort of do it in the comment threads. You do you see your friends' comments on other pictures? Yes, you do. Okay, so the, you can fan out that way. So if. You see, if you look at what your other friends have liked and commented, you can discover people that way. So it has that that flow. Um, but the act of mirroring to people and and showing them to each other. See, I think the thing is that a photograph mirrors you on its own. Even your relationship with the photograph by yourself, you get some sense of what you just did in a way that I don't think people get with text. And so when you're mm. trying to create community or connect people or help conversation happen in a network situation... You have a hashtag. I saw like I did photo for every day for a day. I forget what the hashtag for that was. And that kind of spread out among, through people's comments to find it. So that's like a thread that goes through. But Well, that's interesting because that um, there was Daily Booth that was set up precisely for that purpose. Um, to, to, to encourage you to take a photograph every day, it would, it would nag you and you'd go and take but this a photograph. But there'd be a theme there sort of being assigned. Oh, I see. This is, okay. Yeah, that, that, like today is, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, take a photo. something that, to that, eat. That, that, makes, or... that, that makes sense. But but the interesting thing that happened with Daily Booth was that they got, um, in some ways, they got accidental intimacy because one of the things they enabled was you can upload a photograph with your comment. So Daily Booth was was the I I see it as like its its starting point was the opposite of Instagram. And the presumption was it's taking a photograph of yourself with the webcam in your computer, um, and you're supposed to do that every morning when you first look into the computer. And that was the, then they do a time lapse and you, you'd get that. Um, Think thing that guy did with your face morphing over time and the eyes in the same place, you know, um, that was not, their, not their, just that one guy. Like that was about seventy thousand people for one yeah, yeah, season. Yeah. There, no, exactly. It was that one guy, and then everyone did it, you know. And then, yeah. um, and so they thought, oh, we're good enough for that. But then what happened was, 
Um, they they came up with a nice idea of, of you know, they allowed comments and they let you put a photograph into the comment. And so what happened then was people were doing call and response and doing expressions to each other and um, and mm. mugging to the camera and you know, you know, doing surprise faces and doing the, the thing Heather did with the wasp with the wasp face. Um, and I think that that enabled people to to have a much you know, stronger emotional connection with. Um, with each other through that medium and, and you know, do that, that kind of flocking. I think there's um, this sort of, the, the notion of um, attaching faces to things. There's, there's um, do you know My Face When? No. My, so myfacewhen.net is a site that, you, that collects links of facial expressions um, and then you, you share them um, in... It's yeah. like it's like an on-demand emoticon. Yes, they're, they're like emoticons with with a bit more emotion, and they're you know it, it's sort of very reddity. It's sort of the way that you get a Hallmark card because you can't express your feelings to someone on a holiday. If you have a mm-hmm. moment of expression, you don't need to learn how to express because you can find the photo. That's amazing. Yes. This is like that is that is this is very exciting. This is like Asperger's. Resource. Well, it's you know, it's like it's like the, the you know, a chunk of them are the are the rage comic ones. If you, 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 you know the rage comic, you so rage comic is a um, a Reddit 4chan meme of constructing a little narrative full of um, stereotypical angry faces. Um, and if you do the most popular on my face when they are the cliched rage comic faces, the troll face. The, the, the sort of sad face, the, the face, and so on. Um, and there's a sort of, you know, strand of these where you basically narrate your, your teenage angst with, with a series of these. Um, but they're now, you, you know, they're now used as a sort of, sort of more intense smiley, right? rather than just the, um, the sort of six Ekman emotions that are, that are available as smileys. These, these, are, these have more nuance to them. And also... By there are also mimetic feedback loops of of saying yes, you know I'm I'm in on the joke and I, therefore I'll give you the, the the Jackie Chan going huh face or or whatever. Sure. Well, they also have something that's really been missing from emoji and and smileys, which is just complete racism. So that um, it's good yes, that there, that's there gotten a, in there now. There is a big chunk of racism in, in them in them too. Yeah. And why do but, you I mean, think that's part of culture? Why, why do you think that happened? Oh, that's that culture, though. I mean, you just kind of can't have rage faces and memes without the sort of 4chan Encyclopedia Dramatica style racism getting dropped in there. That's just part of it. Like people, that's a reaction that people seem to have to it. I'm just curious why you think that's the place where it's coming out or why that becomes the social currency in that space so quickly. It's a really good question. I, you know, I mean... Partially because people are racist, partially because I think it's just a way to, you know, I really don't know. I don't know why everything has to devolve to kind of like classic shitty racism so quickly. Because, I mean, to me, it reflects that, first of all, it's probably a pretty white environment from the get-go. And I mean, also sexism, too. Oh, well, they go, there's like, you know, peanut butter and jelly, right? Yeah, they really do. But, you know, it's pretty clear that one you have one, you're going to find the other. So when you get <sighs> that... All the pedophilia jokes. And usually I find it to be this expression of 
you bloody people are telling me how to feel, and I can yeah. feel however I want. So F you, this oh. is my space to tell you that I look how edgy. Also, sometimes used by uh, alt-white male comics to try to express how quote-unquote edgy they are. Right. They, uh, they're very edgy until they use the N-word, then they pedal that back. But they usually don't do that around <laughs> sexism or homophobia, then that's just edgy freedom of speech. Sure. Uh, but, I mean, that, that's to me how I see it playing out often, you know, at this point. But I, I'm not so into 4chan and Reddit that I see it in that space or see it so visually. It's kind of intense. So um, we had a, a question here. I'm trying to remember who was asking it. I think it was no revenue. Want to know, let's ask, I mean, Paul, do you think that the intimacy that Facebook will be able to keep it? Because Facebook doesn't seem to have any intimacy of its own. I mean, you know, of course they can keep it. They can allow those guys to be really, you know, continue to be really good product managers and and not try to monetize it in the most, you know, blatant bad ways. And they can be, you know, they have a great, very functional advertising platform and, and maybe that's a way to maybe there's a way to integrate that with Instagram without totally uh, messing up the community um, you know when I when when this first happened one of the first things that many people said was well this story never ends well the big company buys the little company and the product slowly and surely gets destroyed and so it seems like there's a lot of people who do expect it to get messed with there's a lot of people obviously in this i mean most of the people in the 30 million probably just don't care like they don't they don't think about it and they're not worried about it but there definitely is a minority who are like oh well here we go um but sure why not facebook could do a good job and keep instagram cool will they i mean what how what's their track record with acquisitions like oh tricky what have they been i mean what did they buy Kevin, do you remember? Um, they have, what have they bought? Um, Friend feed. Goala. Goala, that's right. Um, yeah. Some other yeah. small ones that ended up basically being get the product guy and throw them into it. Um, so, but they, you know, they, did, they did put out a statement saying this is going to be different. We're going to keep this together. We're not going to destroy it and blow it up. That, that was explicitly part of Zuckerberg's statement this time, which wasn't the statement for, for the previous ones. Um, sure. Now you know they've kept they've kept um, friend feed running, but it's you know, a go, you know it's a ghost town now. I, I go there once a week for the Gilmore Gang because we're still using it as our chat room, but n- sure. no one else ever uses it except that they've still got their Twitter feeds piping into it. Um, whereas this one, they're explicitly saying no, we're going to keep this going. I mean, one interesting thing will be: do they get to stay in South Park? Do they have to move down to um, you know the Swamp Castle in Menlo Park? Um, that that that'll be an interesting marker for whether they're doing this right. Um, the the other you know the the example of this that does, that did work was YouTube where Google said okay we're not going to mess with blow you up and drag you into into uh, Mountain View you can stay where you are you can keep your independence stuff and we'll just um, help you change your back end to something that will scale a lot bigger um, so they they, uh, they realized that the culture that they had there was important and they didn't destroy it which is which is was was smart thinking on their part you know, they, the, the opposite of what they did to Jaiku. Andy uh, Andy Bio has showed up um, and Woo! started listing acquisitions. Oh boy! Um, and and there's just... also Fuman uh, Fumandunian has also put the Kevin the Wikipedia if, if, page. If Andy's yeah. kind enough to call in, can you can you pipe him into the feed? Yeah, I can. And if you want to join in, I would love to talk to you, include you in this conversation with your voice about you know some Yahoo acquisitions. He, he, you might he, have he some just opinions needs to on. Tell me his Skype handle and add me. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, I'm Kevin Moss on Skype. Can you hear him? Let's see, wax pants. Anyway. I have, I'm sorry I have a loud, I have a DOS keyboard, which is embarrassing, and uh, so I'm going to just type. So here's some of the acquisitions, Andy Bio, who uh, is the creator of Upcoming.org, uh, which Yahoo acquired some time ago in its beta of acquisitions. He also uh, runs Waxy.org, and he's one of those geeks who writes and writes well and has helped make Kickstarter, all kinds of things. So Beluga, I don't know Beluga. Beluga was a, a small group Twittery? texting things, um, uh-huh. like a meet your friends. Um, and that the guys from that ended up doing the Facebook messaging. And then Datum. Datum is that beautiful um, kind of where you're going to track all of your quantified self stuff. Didn't that become like a company for like seven minutes and then get acquired and turned into the <laughs> timeline? I think that's what happened. That's where the, where the timeline came from? I think so. I'm not sure. Because Dippity, uh, Derek Dukes' startup, they didn't acquire, but he had a timeline product out and running on Facebook for a while before it got to. um... All right. Pronounce my name right. I don't even know. Who's Fumandunian? You pronounce that? You pronounce pronounce the title right, at least. I don't know who it is. (laughs) But, uh, okay, Minga, Ruler, Grones, Grones. You know what? This is like hanging out with people who know. I feel like kind of one of those movies that John Cusack's in, that that hipster guy is at Chuck Planet. Who's that, that writer, Mariko, who writes those books about music, high fidelity, and there's always um, some Nick, there's some like unwashed Hornby. Nick Hornby, someone's unwashed and moaning about a girlfriend, but they know four thousand little details about bands that you know existed and. In Minneapolis for five minutes, and it, but that guy ended up in this band. That's what I feel like we're having that kind of. God, that is true. Like Hot Potato is a garage band. That, but it was a garage well, band worth ten million dollars. Well, but this is this was your metaphor, right? This was this was your band metaphor where Coldplay. You know, it, it it was. I did. That's me. Just you know, let's, and thank you for giving me that credit. Um, connect you. I don't like the ones that end with a single capital letter. That's one of my least favorite things. Connect U. Anything that ends with a capital U, I don't like that company. That's all it takes? That's all it takes. Honestly, it's that simple. Beluga, I'm also making But there's also like Snap2, TU. That's rough. That's, that's a cup of strong coffee every day if you have to go in there. But that sold for 60 to $70 million when it was out of Israel. So, you know. That's there. My preferences really didn't weigh in on uh, on the acquisition of Snap2 on March 2020. Eleven. Oh, fantastic! Calling in Andy. Oh, this is our first spontaneous call-in. Hey there. Hey. How you doing? Hi, Andy. Well. Hi, I'm Andy. so excited. This is working. <laughs> Andy. Oh, technology. Love it. So. Andy, so you, Facebook, uh, I, I just I just hopped in, so I didn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, I missed I missed most of uh, <laughs> but you what you guys were saying. But you're talking about the Facebook Instagram acquisition. Uh, I so I wrote the I don't know if you saw, it, but I wrote a piece. You wrote on, a piece, on, yeah. Why do you about, uh, about your the, the patent use of your the, your unwilling use of. Uh, Weaponizing Yahoo, patents? Yes, that, that weaponizing you your patents based on... Well, no, no, no. no I, was thinking, also... I wasn't even talking about that one. I just, oh. uh, just uh, two days ago, I published a, a new article on oh. Wired and then just published it on Waxy again yesterday about the Instagram acquisition specifically. No bubble to see and, here, that one. So basically what I did was I was curious about how it measured up relative to other 
historical acquisitions of the last 10 years, you know, the, for everything from, you know, GeoCities to OMG Pop, you know, uh, looking at the YouTube acquisition, everything else. And so uh, I, I went looking for the for the data and amazingly, like nobody has ever really like collected this into, into one place. So I dug up, uh, I dug up the acquisition dates, the the size of each of those startups at the time that they were acquired, how many users they had, uh, how many employees they had, and and tried to figure out the cost per user. So the amount of money that was paid, how much how much was there each you know active user effectively worth, and how much was each employee worth? Uh, you know if if you know if, if the acquisition amount was divided evenly among them. And so what was kind of surprising to me uh, was that the cost per user was uh, was actually relatively reasonable compared to all those you know crazy acquisitions of the past, uh, but the cost per employee was off the charts. I mean, it's such a small group. There's only 13 people uh, at at Instagram, oh, I and so I the YouTube hub was was the same sort of size. Was is this some argument about definition of number of employees? Somebody else said that that YouTube had a similar number of employees when they were bought. But... Yeah, no, so, really. Uh, so I've got the. I mean, I actually managed to dig up the numbers for each of these. Let me just pull up the spreadsheet real quick. Yeah, for, on, some, uh, on some level, though, also, Andy, isn't this isn't this um, true in the context of the web in general that startups are smaller and smaller because you're able to do more with less people? Well, yeah, that was my that was my take. Is this this is only going to continue to happen? So YouTube at the time they required had 67 employees, uh-huh. uh, and they were acquired for 1.6 billion dollars. They had 34 million active users, and that was in 2006. Right. Okay. And then Instagram, at the point that they were acquired, had 35 million uh, users, 13 employees, and was acquired for a billion dollars. And so a lot of people were, were criticizing my article saying, you know, you didn't look at revenue. Uh, how can you say that, it's, that this isn't not reflective of a bubble if you're not looking at revenue? And, and my take was like, look at YouTube. YouTube had zero revenue. Not only did it have no revenue. It had a billion dollar lawsuit, yes. When it was acquired, <laughs> it, was, it was caught up in, yeah, exactly. It was caught up in a, in a number of uh, major lawsuits. Uh, pending, it was uh, it was also bleeding money for bandwidth. The the estimates at the time were about a million dollars a month for uh, for bandwidth, and and Instagram their costs can't even approach what what YouTube was doing then. Right. So anyway, and 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 had no revenue. They just started. They just introduced uh, uh, limited advertising a few months before they were acquired. But um, you know does. Would would you say that Google was insane to have bought YouTube in two thousand six? I don't. I think that was actually a pretty, you know, forward yeah, thinking yeah. acquisition. But um, I remember anyway. a lot of people at the time saying it was insane and saying, "Well, they could have built that themselves over the weekend." And you know, and the, the th- ignoring the fact that they had actually built it over the last two years as Google Video, um, but had gone the wrong way with it and had gone the oh, we must. Be, do what Hollywood tells us and sell stuff, rather than let's let people post things that they want to see from each other. Um, so, Andy, you have this great historical context where you not only are looking at this, reading this research for this piece, but you yourself went through get, being a hot young social startup that was acquired by a big kind of portal, and you could con- call Facebook really a social portal. And it seems to attempt to do all things for all people, sort of, as long as you stay in their little world. How do you think uh, this compares to your experience, or what did you learn from your experience that's that's affecting how you view this? Upcoming, upcoming was so tiny, so 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 small, and and the the amounts 
the amount of money was so small uh, relative to to the you know, something like Instagram. So it's really difficult to say. I mean, they're they're thirteen. They're very small companies, thirteen people. But I think by virtue of the amount of money that was spent, showed the seriousness, uh, kind of the gravity of of what they want to do. You know, their right. plans for uh, for Instagram. Whereas with uh, with Yahoo, Yahoo's just notorious for acquiring companies, not uh, uh, you know that like they they'd come in and then they were almost immediately abandoned. Like they just didn't know what to do. Like they knew that they wanted they wanted to like bring fresh new ideas and, and people in uh, and were willing to pay to, to make that happen. But then once they were there, there was just no there was no uh, overall strategy. So. And Andy, yeah. I, I want to point out in your piece there is just an amazing moment where you bring it. Where you, you you explain that you cannot put the broadcast.com <laughs> acquisition on the chart because Yahoo paid nearly $10,000 each for an active user, per active user. $11,000 oh. a user. It was just clearly the stupidest acquisition and use of an acquisition I've ever seen. The numbers, the numbers even, uh, I, I didn't even adjust for inflation. What? Uh, <laughs> and that was 1999, $5.7 billion. Uh, wow. For for about a half a million active users. Part of what killed me about that acquisition personally was I'd been part of this team that helped start webcasting at Apple in 96. And we had a larger server infrastructure than Broadcast.com had. And it was thrown out. Thrown out <laughs> when Steam Jobs came back. I was like, it's apparently worth a lot of money. I don't know if that's well, true. We bought a new one when I was there. Yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> I had to do it again. But it was just this weird experience of like, is it really, like, do they still use it? Did they use it? Does Yahoo use anything? They used it for uh, for some web streaming for a limited time, and then it was, uh, I think it was pretty quickly abandoned. I mean, the, the domain doesn't even resolve anymore. Like, wow. That's good stuff right there. Broadcast.com, if you're listening to this show and you're not as incredibly nerdy about startups as apparently we are being now, uh, is started by Mark Cuban. Uh, also, who someone once offered to broker his sperm to me to have a child, just part of my historical experiences with Mark Cuban, who owns the Dallas Mavericks. And anything else beyond the audience? Uh, Magnolia Films. Um, and, and HDNet? Yeah, yeah. They're definitely a very you know, outspoken guy about trying to change the media business in general. Um, and has lots of interesting instincts. And he, I mean, he just was the most opportunistic of anybody in this whole experience so so andy do you, do you think um what do you think facebook could do do you think they can they can keep intimacy that exists on instagram lord i don't know um it's a it's this is a really difficult question right i mean like you there's a number of people that are are using instagram because it's not facebook <laughs> right right now Including Jenny Jardin, who said immediately, I'm leaving, after having posted, you know, her highly seen, because she posted on Boing Boing, you know, stream of chemo. I mean, she's very publicly experiencing cancer and treatment for it. I mean, it's been one of the most amazing streams I've seen on Instagram. She's leaving, apparently. Yeah, I mean, it may, that may be a really small percentage of, of the audience, and probably is. You know, it's there. There are people that uh, that don't like Facebook for whatever reason. But then there's a lot of people that use Instagram that publish end up publishing everything to their Facebook feed anyway. So I don't, 
I mean, I, I, I don't know how it changes the culture. When I mean, it, inevitably, they're going to start requiring uh, uh, Facebook logins, or you know, they're going to want to identify those those people and tie it together. And how how does that end up, you know, shifting the culture? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's. I think it's. It, it works in their favor that Instagram is an app-only uh, experience. You know, there's no conflicting web uh, web presence there. You know, maybe maybe that uh, because it's it's standalone ends up uh, ends up working working in Facebook's favor. Well, if you think about the power structure in organizations, right? Like that's a really good. Oh, sorry. Can you unplug and replug your microphone? I suspect you've overrun the the um, tolerance of the buffer. That was just the most elegant technological in interjection I've ever heard. I have plugged back in. Yay. Did that, yep. that work? Yep. Great. Um, so what was I saying? I was saying, oh, that, that Facebook, um, you know, I mean, the, it, yeah, the, the fact that it's purely mobile, like it just means that all the other product managers won't necessarily need to go in and exercise influence over it. So maybe it can kind of be its own thing. Or maybe not. Well, I just, it, it, it seems kind of interesting because Facebook's general drive so far has been so walled garden. You know, everything's here. We do everything. You got to come here, do it our way. Or that's how it feels. Yeah, I, I have a hard time imagining um, them leaving Instagram alone in the same way that, that, that Google for a long time left, uh, left YouTube on its own. They never rebranded it. It never became Google Video. It never, uh, you know, they introduced single sign-on, but they did that really elegantly, and it really never, uh, uh, it never hurt the culture. And where they, where, it's one of the rare uh, acquisitions where everybody seemed to benefit. You know, the uh, uh, people could use their Google IDs. They leveraged their experience with infrastructure and and you know serving tr tremendous amount of traffic. Uh, I mean, bandwidth. Uh, uh, costs for for YouTube uh, oh, well, went away. Went away. They they managed um, to become peering partners and and, may, and rebalance their traffic because they would they, they, before right. Google was doing a huge amount of inbound um, outbound traffic through crawl um, and YouTube would help them invert that and, and become something that people had to peer with. So actually, it it saved Google money on on bandwidth. And the biggest benefit was that uh, Google provided them a business model, which was which was yes. advertising. I mean, they're an advertising company. And Yep. I mean, and, and interestingly too. I mean, Google actually uh, sort of killed its own video. Not, not. It still sort of exists, right? But like, not yeah. Google, yeah, I used yeah, to read use Google Video only. all the time. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's a, like Google Video. They've tried to shut it down three times. Yeah. You know, so I mean, that's like that's pretty intense. That they, not only did they have their own product, they bought it, and then they slowly started to sunset the thing that that was competing, and that's. That'll be interesting. Like, I cannot imagine Facebook photos being sort of slowly pushed off to the side while the Instagram experience starts to take over. That's true, but it's a, it's a different, yeah, it's a different balance there. The, the Facebook photos are still the biggest flow of photos on the net, I believe. Sure. Uh, um, and but you just think about the, the power, like, I mean, just sort of how people, how these things tend to work out, like, Right now, they feel separate, and that's the really big one. And so on. like, you just have to wonder: is there going to be that meeting where they go, "Yeah, they, we we just can't do it like that with the Instagram anymore. We're just not getting the, we're not hitting the numbers." Or do like, they want the Instagram people to help them make their app 
their phone app better, which isn't all that great and doesn't have advertising in it. True. That's what, that could be it. Um, well, I, I was th- I was thinking about this yesterday. I'm kind of surprised that uh, that YouTube has not created uh, kind of like led the way to to create the essential uh, Instagram for video. You know, like we we have we have a social photo experience now on uh, uh, on on phones that works really well and and was was acquired great uh, fanfare, but. Where's the video? Where's the video equivalent? And I'm, I'm well, really surprised that, that there hasn't YouTube been. YouTube and social is, is, is like the, the, the twain shall never meet, really. It, it's, it's a byword for toxicity. You know, you, you... <laughs> it is to just imagine <laughs> YouTube commenters invading Instagram. Like it would, it would make it the worst experience. So, so you in... know, in, in terms of Google's point of view on that, their, their point of view is that's what we're building with Plus and that's what they're building with Hangouts. And if you want a sort of video experience, it's the Hangout experience. That, that's, that's what they built. And that is actually a reasonably good social experience. Yeah. I, I would say, I mean, you mean, do you mean uh, like a short kind of light, small video clip? thing that you're going to stream a moment of your life there been i can't remember there have been bunches of the little startups make and there's, yeah, there's lots of those but no no i'm not talking about a streaming conversation like a season no, 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 was back and forth season but that's post and response. that's conversation i mean yeah, like, I mean, like, like instagram like i've the, just taken a moment i've taken exactly. a short bit of video here and there now Flickr, when initially allowed you to upload video it was short bits of video right. that were like that like small kind of artistic posts and instagram because of the filters and all the design stuff we talked about earlier like Vimeo, like Flickr, had a default or Tumblr to a kind of a well-designed, nice-looking place. That's not been true of YouTube. And the content on YouTube yeah. is massively also not always original content. I know they're trying to get there now, but that's not what drove a lot of the early experience there, right? I mean, a lot of Instagram is like, we're not only going to help it, you come in here and participate, it's going to look good. And that wasn't sort of been YouTube's... Well, I mean, but all the mobile phones will post to YouTube. We record a video on iPhone or Android, and there's a p- upload this to YouTube button right next to it. You know, there is a it, it was it's been part of the UX there. Um, the problem is more on the other side of, of of YouTube itself. There isn't the experience YouTube in a social way experience there at all. Well, the the length of video is just a killer on that product, right? So, I mean, if you could say to people, make a well, that was the Twitter thing, the Flickr thing of, of making it 120 seconds, wasn't it? Trying right, to but I, was, I think it has to be like five to ten seconds looping. Like it has to be really minimal to work at that volume. Otherwise, you can't have the kind of... What are those three-frame things, Andy? Those. Yeah, three-frame. Or, or uh, you know, a, cinema, a cinemagraph maker for... Uh, you know what cinemagraphs are? The... the uh, the animated GIFs, where the uh, one element of the of the right. GIF is isolated and and moves, and the rest stays static in the background. Microsoft uh, just released a free tool for Windows that lets you create uh, easily create this that style of uh, of animated GIF. But I could absolutely imagine somebody doing a, a free app that lets you uh, lets you record a very short short clip, makes the makes the cinemagraph, mm-hmm. right, and then uh, and then shares those socially. I mean, yeah. just animated gifts would be amazing. That would be a, a, that social network would be hilarious. It would be awesome. It'd be very <laughs> yeah. The net the net art uh, world needs to you know do some more iOS development. Yeah, that's exactly what they're thinking to themselves. The art world. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not the art world. The net art. Net world. Art. You know, the like the, the 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 people that you know have uh, been Those pushing animated animated gift culture and uh, that whole subculture. But there's there's something there's something sort of slightly Harry Potter about these as well, isn't there? The cinemagraphs. 
They're kind of uncanny. They're freaking me out, people. <laughs> Go to cinemagraphs, C-I-N-E-M-A-G-R-A-P-H-S.com, and you will totally feel like you're reading one of those Harry Potter book things. I, I saw some um, some work in a in a in Schrager hotel like this where they'd have these sort of photos and then the, and the of a portrait, and then the guy would just sort of raise his eyebrow at you once in a while. And they would slowly, things would move, but you barely notice that something went from one place to another. It just felt odd. Wow, these are a little bit uncanny. Yeah, they're freaking me out. <laughs> because they're so human, but so not at the same yeah, time. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a slight... It's a violation of expectations thing with the cinematograph ones, yeah. So, yeah, the, the precedent here is the George Harrison Got My Mind Set on You video. Has anyone seen that? No, but now we have to all go look at it. There you go. It's just him. <laughs> it's just like him playing guitar, and then just little things move around in the background. Like uh, if I remember, yeah. it's like a hat. Like a hat just moves and... So, I've, um, so we have a few more minutes here because we're trying to keep these shows tighter. I'm curious. Both of you guys came, came to coding first, right, and writing second or no? Uh, I was doing as, – uh, As a passion, as a thing you really spent time on, obviously, in grade one or whatever, they made you learn to write. No, I, 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 didn't, I didn't go to school for, uh, for computer science. I, my degree was in communications and journalism. Yeah, mine was mine was English. I mean, my dad was an English professor, and he sat me down in front of a Commodore PET when when I was six, and he started to talk about how basic programs are like poems. So I kind of I I just sort of never saw much difference. And I've been I've been using computers since VIC twenty and Commodore sixty four, but uh, but really didn't start developing uh, my own software until after after college, really. Interesting. So yeah, no, I mean, Jack Tramiel, who's the uh, the founder of of Commodore, died this week, and it was interesting to see people reminiscing about mm. about their Commodore experiences, and and you know, just as when Steve Jobs died, there was this sort of massive the Max Save My Life experience stuff, but um, so many of us started out with with Commodore computers, um, and it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. Um, thing that the Mac did it was it was you know it was 10 years 10 years well six years earlier whatever um but it was it, it felt malleable in in a in a you know what was you said about constraints there was enough constraints for writing little basic programs and little bits of assembler on the pet that felt that you could do it too and sure. there was there was you know they published listings in magazines that you would type in um so there was this sense that it was an accessible skill um that you know we're still trying to get you know trying to get back to that for the web as well now. The web was another edition of that with the idea of you can just view source and see how they did it and adapt that for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a natural part of the web. In, in that era, there was a presumption that you, you could see other people's code as well because there were basic programs that you were, that you were sharing, often sharing by printing them and retyping. No, it's true. And that's, you know, an awful lot of that is gone. And that, that ethos was so great. I actually grew up uh, in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which was the home of Commodore. So where a lot of schools had apples, we always had C64, C128. It's like, it was just, it was, uh, you know, a friend of mine worked as a tech writer there later. So it, it's, it always felt very native to me. Like this is what computers were supposed to be. And it's literally down the road. And then later they uh, put the QVC stu- studio in there. That was after Commodore died. Huh. Fun so- fact. Interesting facts. Well, I mean, just interested in hearing what you guys are both doing other than being linked by 
working with Anil and writing and coding and being humanities majors. Very interesting, both of you. And it sounds so it sounds like Andy, you don't feel that this is too much money. That, that well, I don't know. Pay. I don't know about that. Now, this is one thing that I I kind of bugged me about uh, uh, when my article ended up on Wired was that they they gave it this headline that uh, that really wasn't quite what I was trying to say. They they said <laughs> something like. You know, there's no bubble to see here. Right. I didn't, that's not what I, you were saying, right? I don't know about <laughs> that. I, you know, that's a, a hell of a lot of money, uh, and especially for a well, for we we you know, don't a year old thirteen per, or two year old you know thirteen person company. That's a lot of money, no matter how you slice it. Uh, I, so I'm not going to say that there's that there's not a bubble. I don't know if there's a bubble or not. What I uh, all I was saying is that if you look at historical acquisitions. The cost per user for the for the number of users that they have, uh, you know, kind of is you know, kind of on the low end. I mean, they just have a tremendous uh, amount of activity. So, so have you have, have you guys been following this new aesthetic um, discussion over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I was saying someone someone should set up a, a site like uh, you know, is uh, like am I new aesthetic or not? You know, like where you upload. An image of it's like hot or not? <laughs> captcha. It's like you know, captcha shoes or uh, you know, interpretive dance based on QR codes and and <laughs> and like, is this new aesthetic? Because right now, for me, like I hear people talking about the term. I have a sense that you know uh, that it has to do with uh, with machine vision and kind of uh, uh, you know viewing things through the lens of um, of technology and how machines see and. Uh, and so, I'm, you know, there's like these touchstones where I'm starting to get what uh, what it's all about. But it's one of those things. It's like when you try to try to define something that's already that's already being done, uh, it can it can be tough to you know kind of herd together what this what this is and what the, it's not. I don't thing, I, the, I don't understand it. The thing that got me to pay any attention to it was I went to Bruce Sterling's close of South by Southwest, uh, which he always does a sort of I don't know what the opposite of a benediction is. The convocation, valediction. valediction at the end. Often I've seen him cry and kind of mourn in these things. Mm. He was really happy in this one, which is interesting because certainly the conference doesn't feel like it used to. Although being in this room still felt kind of like Old South, but I felt like you were with real artists having real conversation about genuine feelings and, and aesthetic things and art. And he was thrilled that there was a new aesthetic um panel and conversation, not only that there was one, but the people who were really on top of it and kind of amazing in his estimation uh, were there. Bruce is a, a well-known science fiction writer and he writes a lot about design and a lot about futurism. And part of his thrill about this is the idea that programmers, that, that part of what it is to influence culture on a massive scale is, is to visually and aesthetically influence it and that he spent some time describing you know what hipsters look like now as opposed to 10 years ago like what a what it was like to go to a tech conference and what someone would be dressed like 10 or 15 years ago and how that's changed and how that will keep changing and he seemed to feel very happy about it so I've seen him be that happy so rarely that I was like (laughs) I better read uh, about this thing so it's on my list of things to look at and I, I that lens of looking at it as what does it mean for geek culture to be itself shifting because people are trying to care, are caring more about aesthetics, which Instagram is nothing if not about aesthetics. But I think that the part of the point of the new aesthetic is it's um, images you, you wouldn't have been able to see or make sense of 10 years ago. That's right. 
Yeah, it's 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 you know weird blocks of pixels appearing in the world so that machines can make sense of the world and um, frames are, are references that wouldn't have made sense to you a like you know something that's playing off of a like button or a pixel image that now you know that you wouldn't have at one point. That that's my very very immature premature understanding of it. Is this something you've you've looked into, Paul? Sure. I mean, I think one of the you know the the first thing is that the people um, putting forth this idea are doing hard work and thinking as hard as they can. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of of Aaron Cope and and sort of his work. And it, you know, there's photos of him. He printed a predator. He created a predator drone out of sort of pixels. And it's just a great. I mean, I'll, I'll dig it up and put the link on. It's just a great story about like getting that drone made. And there's a like then he went swimming with it. It's just fun and like. There's a playfulness, but I think of anything, um, and I guess I'm a little bit biased too, because I once went to the new museum in Manhattan with Aaron and watched him, and it was like a digital show. It was all about like new and new media art, and I watched him just like completely melt down because so, he was just so angry with everything. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, and and so, uh, and actually, no, he didn't melt down quite as bad as, as Kellen, who's now at Etsy. I'm just going to call them both out on it. Like, they were angry at the new museum. Kellen was furious. And um, and so I think this is them just going like, wait a minute. If people are going to be reacting to, uh, if they're going to be creating art and talking about the digital and, uh, and, and trying right. to make sense of it, we who were engineers at Flickr or Aaron is somebody who's done um, really interesting stuff with mapping and created sort of beautiful maps using open data and so on and so forth. Like his stuff is a very specific reaction to the culture of the web that the people on this podcast really understand. Like it, it, it's an attempt to, it, it's internalized. It's something we don't talk about. I mean, one of the things for me is like when I try to write these, like the essay I put on New York, like I, I try to make that as literary as possible. I only had a couple hours to get that one done, but I want it to actually sing a little bit, and that always freaks people out. But I, because they're like, well, this is so. Called it a tone poem, which I thought was was, was very good. It's very nice of him, right? But what I'm really trying to do there is is take these two cultures, and and I, you know, Andy tries to do this all the time too. Like try to take two cultures that you live in and. And instead of allow, there's such a split between them, it creates a real anxiety in my life that I can't have my nerd world and my word world all in the same room. And when I can put them together and play with that and actually connect with an audience, it's incredibly gratifying when I can make mean jokes about PHP and do a little trolling, but also then try to bring it back and write a nice sentence. That's really satisfying. Well, this is exactly what it's like to live in any minority, right? And to be a liminal person, which is a thing that's part of what makes one a Tumblr. If you're not the same racial, ethnic makeup, if you're queer, uh, if you're one of three women in a room of 100 men all the time, you yourself are living that way all day right. long. Your life is nothing but, I don't get to be all the pieces of me because I got to be a piece like this over here and I got to translate this to you over there. So that drive to make, uh, I think, creative work, especially... I mean, Andy is just, you know, such a great, uh, so knowledgeable about remixing in general. I think part of the drive to having a remix culture is trying to take pieces of yourself, pieces of everything. And my first solo show, uh, I Look Like an Egg but Identifies a Cookie, is about this a lot. And I'm using a baking metaphor to try to get all the stuff together in the cookie, right? Like, here's, I want, I mean, I see this as the big challenge of social space. How do you make social space where you can have more of those pieces and I think it drives a lot of 
creating. I mean, like you guys are saying, I think it's the most exciting thing to me when you can get this new thing uh, that's this mixed together. I mean, that's part of how we have the president of this country, right? Someone who's like, I'm going to have this thing over here and I'm going to mix it with Kansas and Hawaii and, you know, really conservative in some ways, Illinois, and put this stuff together and you're going to get this new thing that kind of can read lots of ways. Right. And I, I mean, I think with the new aesthetic, what you're actually seeing is that it, it's in the same way that Andy Warhol is responding to pop culture and doing Campbell's soup cans. And then later Jeff Koons comes along and does, you know, big balloon animals and Michael Jackson and, and you know, these various ceramics and, and stuff like that. Um, I think what you're seeing when they're talking about the new aesthetic, it's people reacting yes. to the digital and bringing it into the art world. Well, um, I think we should, I'd love to, if you guys can hang out, continue this conversation post-show because we it went in depth a week or two ago about the new Bravo a reality show. Uh, a big chunk or a third of their slate is in fact about uh, the internet and digital culture and some of it's produced by uh, Mark Zuckerberg's sister, Randy Zuckerberg. So um, that kind of larger aesthetic conversation I think will be wonderful to have. If you join us live at Tumble Vision, we have this live pre and post-show where you can hang out with people are the guests and in the chat room and um, hopefully as technology permits we'll be able to hear each other more often and have more people on I am thrilled Andy was so kind of you to call in Andy Bio at Wax Pancake on Twitter thanks for having me oh it's such a pleasure anytime and and same for you Paul Ford thank you so much for being here great thank you what's your what's your URL I know your Twitter handle is at F train oh just F train dot com F train dot com uh, next week for us is our 100th show. This is our second 100th show. <laughs> well, we're going to take a look back and uh, hopefully have someone interesting interview the three of us about tumbling, how we came together, why we're still using this word. Because <laughs> we are masochists. No. Because uh, it's useful. Because it's, it's happening only more over time. And after that, we've got a lot of other great shows coming up. Steve Garfield, a very early vlogger who's a great proponent of people being about what matters on Instagram or vlogging or anything. Uh, Keo Stark teaches at ITP. We've got coming up. We have a really interesting show with Lucas Black from Mozilla. Does a lot around volunteer engagement, how to get large numbers of volunteers to work together. And is going to draw from her experience in open source code and the Michigan Women's Music Festival, the longest running lesbian feminist event in the country. So that should be super interesting. And anybody else you want to see uh, here or talk with us, um, you know, just suggest them. So... Thanks. It's been great chatting with you from this beautiful office here. Thanks to Salesforce for the space and the bandwidth and the bay for this gorgeous view. <laughs> and uh, Paul, will, is your stuff regularly in New York Magazine? Uh, it will probably be in there again fairly soon. I'm not on a schedule. Okay, so keep so. your eye out there and follow his uh, him on Twitter and, and his blog. Anything you want to let people know about, Kevin? Um. Only well, I'm heading to New York this weekend. Coming back on Tuesday, so if, if you want to catch up with me in New York, let me know on on Twitter. Um, track me down. I've got a bunch of shows uh, coming up. I'll be at the Raz Room and at a place called Mary's Hootons with Queen, Queer Queens of Comedy on I think the 28th, 26th. You can follow my schedule heathergold.com. I've got my show uh, Subvert Live, which is my talk show coming back. It's a rare live show, so if you want to have this large, interesting live conversation with two amazing off-the-grid artists talking about uh, becoming self-taught and how to get that kind of space where you have get to be out, of, out in left field and not dealing with more traditional or institutionalized learning, 
uh, join us, please. I think we're going to have someone from Brightworks School as well there, which would be really cool. And um, trying to get that podcast launched as well. So looking for producers. So get in touch with me if you're interested in working on an incredibly cool show in which you'll see a lot more women and people of color but will, who will not be relegated to talking about that topic. All right. Uh, yours in interestingness and tumbling. We have to mention Waxy.org for, for Andy as well. Waxy.org for Andy. F-Train for Paul Ford. Uh, love to all of you. Images, Loki, Mia, Vanderwall, Ben Ward, lots of you are here with us live. And everyone else who's listening, please review us on iTunes if you'd like other people to find the show. And um, we'll see you soon. Bye.